Well, we continue our uh, Rock History 101 class today. That's what we've been doing lately. Been in a mood of just rock and roll, so we're just going to keep going there. And uh, we're actually going to move up to the level 201, because we're going to be talking about Rush today. And uh, Rush, uh, which you probably know, is a Canadian rock band who really made rock and roll for the intellectual, if you think about their music. It's, uh, uh, it's a little bit more highbrow. In 1977, uh, there are gnats, so forgive me if I'm swiping at the air, but um, in 1977, they released their first hit single, Closer to the Heart. And they had already been in existence for almost 10 years by that point, uh, the band. But Closer to the Heart is the song that really put Rush on the map for the mainstream. And uh, did you know, actually, that Rush just ended last year? Last year. They had, uh, I say ended because it's, it's more accurate than saying broke up. Because Rush really, you know, when you listen to Rush, it was more like going on this kind of epic, fantastical journey with them musically, as opposed to just listening to music. So Rush ended last year after 50 years of taking us on musical adventures. So that's a little pop culture, you know, stuff for you. You can break that out at cocktail parties if you want. But uh, Closer to the Heart uh, was their first big hit. And the lyrics go like this. Philosophers and plowmen, each must know his part to sow a new mentality closer to the heart. You can be the captain, and I will draw the chart, sailing into destiny closer to the heart. When you hear lyrics like that, you can kind of uh, pick up on the fact that we've had brain drain when it comes to our modern music, don't you think? (laughs) Nobody? I think so. Anyway, we don't say wonderful things like philosophers and plowmen anymore in our lyrics today. But um, closer to the heart, to sow a new mentality closer to the heart, to sail into destiny closer to the heart. This is a Christian quest that Rush sings about. Uh, We, as Christians, are always concerned with the heart. Our faith is concerned with the heart. It's focused on the heart. It's God's goal. His aim is to change the hearts of women and men. Whenever we read scripture or we think about matters uh, of lasting significance in our lives or uh, in our world, we are always dealing with heart issues. We're dealing with the heart. We're working to get closer to the heart. You know, we're always tempted to focus on uh, behavior. We are always tempted to stick with the outward actions, thinking that they are what matter most. But... Modern psychology has made it plain, and it's finally caught up with thousands of years of biblical theology, so well done, psychology. Uh, But it has made it plain that it's what is behind the action that matters most. If you want lasting change to occur in somebody's life, and if you want lasting change to occur in the world, then you need to know what's driving the ship. What are the motivations? What is the heart behind the action. And so when we talk about freedom, we talk about peace, we talk about happiness as hopes and goals for our world and for our own lives, we're talking about issues of the heart. <clears throat> so just think about our country, all right? Think about the celebrity 
Or think about, you know, the wealthy socialite, for example. You know, from an outward perspective, if you're just focused on appearances, they seem to have it all. They have wealth, freedom, peace, everything that, you know, our financial well-being gets you in our world. But are they happy? And you might, you might say yes, if you just stick with appearances, you know, they might try to, and they will probably try to convince you that they're happy. I've been obsessed with this show called Fastest Car on Netflix. And I know you're all into it. It's about drag racing. And um, they take one supercar and they race it against three other uh, sleepers. They call them sleepers. So it's just taking like an average car and then putting it, you know, tons of engine in it, you know, and turbos and NOS, which is nitrous oxide, all this stuff, to make the car go fast. All right, and they race. And there's this... It's in this incredible classist experiment because the supercar owner is always incredibly wealthy. And then all of the sleeper car owners are people that are just scraping by, but they're obsessed with cars. And there's a ton of resentment between them all. And the, the rich person, the supercar owner, there's lit, I've watched 10 episodes and there's been two, no, three decent people that own supercars. And the rest of them have been really jerks. And... Um, <laughs> But that's the way they're kind of painting it, and they don't mind it. Anyhow, point being is that there's this projection of happiness. There's a projection that I've got it all together, because look at what I've got. I'm driving a McLaren, or I'm, you know, I've got my Lamborghini, whatever. I'm happy, and these other people are just, you know, sad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not kidding. Go watch it, Fastest Car, on Netflix. This is the way it kind of comes off. If we just stick with appearances and we stick with the outward, you know, we do this all the time. We buy into this idea that we try to project the most positive version of ourselves. But if you take a closer look, if you get closer to the heart, what do you find? You find addiction, you find secrecy, you find stress, you find fear, you find dysfunction, you find depression, you find legal problems, you find shattered families, etc., etc., etc. You find the same brokenness as you would anywhere else. You can have everything outwardly and be in complete bondage inwardly. And the reverse is true also. You can have nothing outwardly and have complete freedom inwardly. So we want to sow a new mentality closer to the heart. This is our quest. We're on this quest with Rush today. And Jesus teaches us this very thing. He teaches his disciples and us this in our passage in Mark today. Jesus has been teaching in the temple when we catch up with him here. And he decides to sit down across from the treasury, which was really just the offering box. Uh, and there were 13 of these offering boxes in the temple. And they were actually shaped like trumpets. Uh, and they were out in the open for all to see. And part of the temple worship was that the people would bring their offerings forward and put them into one of the boxes. And uh, it, was, it was out in the open. It was part of their worship. And Jesus and his disciples were there during uh, the Feast of the Passover. That's when this is happening. And there would have been a ton of people there. Passover was a time when you traveled to Jerusalem to worship the Lord and to celebrate the Passover. If you were a Jew, no matter where you lived, you tried to make it to Jerusalem during Passover. So Jews from all over would have been there. You can just picture the scene. It would have just been bustling with people, the temple. 
in the courts. So there were crowds milling around everywhere, and there were probably lines of people waiting to put in their offerings. And so Jesus sits down, and he does some good old-fashioned people-watching, and uh, just sits there and watches what folks are doing. And he sees many rich people put in their large gifts, and then he notices this poor widow put in two copper coins, which is the smallest denomination uh, that they had at that time, and together they equaled about a penny. And Jesus points this out to his disciples. He highlights this woman and, and what she did because he wants them and us to pay attention to the condition of her heart. We see Jesus' divinity on display here for the record because he knows about this woman. He knows more about her than one would just being a casual observer. Jesus is not a casual observer. He is God himself, and he knows the hearts of people, and he knows the circumstances of their lives. And here, he tells his disciples that this poor widow, which they probably would have recognized her as poor, just from outward appearances, but this poor widow had uh, made the largest offering out of everybody there, because it was everything that she had, all she had to live on. He knew her situation. He knew that those were her last two coins. Her offering was a true sacrifice to the Lord, and it wasn't for show. Remember the context. She was in the midst of lots of other people, and there were people putting in lots of money. And she puts in this tiny gift. No one would have noticed it. No one would have paid attention to it. It was not impressive in the slightest from the outward perspective. Her gift was truly for God's eyes only. Only he would see it and know it for what it truly was, and he did. Jesus saw it. And this moment in the gospel comes right after Jesus had uh, been teaching his disciples about the scribes and the Pharisees. It's right on the heels of this time where he says, beware of the scribes to uh, to his disciples, because he was not a casual observer of them either. Right? He could see into their hearts. And he pointed out, right before this, he pointed out that the scribes and the Pharisees loved to walk around in long robes and liked being greeted in the market, marketplaces and having the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feasts. Now, I don't wear this to the grocery store. But maybe I should start. No, I'm kidding. Um, He's saying that they, they liked being seen as important, all right? They liked their status, and they liked to show it off. Not only that, he says that they liked to make long prayers to impress people. You know, they were very wordy. And if you were just focused on the outward actions, on the outward appearances, the scribes and the Pharisees seemed to be doing it right, and they seemed to have it all. Culturally, they were just doing what the religious leaders in their time did. But Jesus, as we said, is always focused on the heart. And he knew that they were doing all of it for their own glory. All for show. He knew that they obtained their position and their importance and their wealth from what he says, devouring widows' houses. That's his line. That's how they got to where they were, by devouring widows' houses. They exploited the poorest of the poor, 
those that they were actually supposed to care for, as we heard last week in Micah, we heard last week that God calls us to care for the orphan and the widow. And Jesus is warning the disciples and us against the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, he's warning, his warning is just as potent today as it was then. Just think of the prosperity preacher, okay? Think of the prosperity gospel of our day, where they have made millions while exploiting the poor, flying around in their private jets, which you can actually find on YouTube, preachers, guys who are supposed to be preachers of the word of God, sitting around justifying their ownership of multi-million dollar jets. It's on YouTube, you can look it up. It is sad. They're flying around in their private jets, owning multiple million-dollar mansions, you know, and they preach a false gospel, one that manipulates people into thinking that if they give sacrificially to their ministry, then God will bless them with more health and wealth and prosperity. It's the same ruse that Jesus saw 2,000 years ago when he looked at the scribes and the Pharisees. And he condemned it then, and he condemns it now. The contrast here that Jesus points out is that one of those very widows, one of those forgotten people of society, a person that the scribes would have ignored, except for probably to get a little more money out of her, she comes and she gives more than all the others there. Now, it's important to note that Jesus is not judging the rich here, okay? He's not saying, look at these jerks giving out of their abundance. That's not what he says. He's not calling rich people jerks. I just want to be clear about that. He's calling the scribes and the Pharisees jerks. All right? So he's, he's actually, it's pointed at me. And um, he's, he's calling the prosperity preachers jerks. You know, he's condemning that approach where you're going for your own glory. He just uses the rich as an example. They are just, he's using their example just to highlight how much of a sacrifice she made. They may have been giving very great big gifts, wonderful gifts, and their hearts may have been for the Lord, just so you know. He's just highlighting that her gift was greater because it was everything she had. They still had more left after they had given, but she gives everything. So if we want to get closer to the heart, if we want to actually get at what Jesus is talking about here, uh, you know, we want to hear what he's highlighting about this widow's heart. He highlights what she does and explains her true situation to the disciples and to all of us because it reveals that she was completely dependent on God. Giving those two little coins revealed the state of her heart. It re revealed the fact that her hope and her trust was in God and nothing else, and in no one else. She had nothing else. She's referred to as a poor widow twice in this tiny little paragraph, and it paints a crystal clear picture of her situation. She had no one to care for her, and she had nothing left financially. She was the lowest of the low in society at that time. And from an outward perspective, you would have looked at her and probably said she has no hope. But Jesus reveals that that is exactly false. She had all the hope in the world 
because she depended on God and she trusted in him completely. The scribes and the Pharisees, on the other hand, were not depending on God at all, even though that was literally their job. Their hearts were completely dependent on their own position and wealth. That's what Jesus told us, that they were in love with their own glory. And this is why Jesus condemns their actions. They appeared to have it all, but they actually had nothing. And the widow appeared to have nothing, but she really had everything. The scribes were bound to their wealth. I want you to hear that word bound, because that's really what it is. Bondage. They were bound to their wealth, their position, and their appearance. It was what was driving the ship. It was controlling their lives. They looked free, but they were actually slaves. And the widow, she looked doomed, but she was actually free in the Lord. Nothing ruled over her except for God himself. She was free to give everything she had, knowing that God was her true hope. And she's celebrated by Jesus in this passage forever for us to know. We know about this poor widow. The Son of God himself points her out in the midst of all that was going on in the temple. You know, all of the important people, all the celebrations that were happening around him. And he says, she is the greatest because of her faith. He's pointing to her faith. Her heart was completely dependent on God. Only he would be able to meet her need. Nothing else could save her. Nothing else could sustain her. And this is true about us. When our hearts belong to the Lord, when we depend on him, it sets us free with everything else in our life. We say it every week, all things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. When we're dependent on him, we realize that everything we have is his anyway. It was all a gift to us. Our life itself is a gift to us. Our very breath every day is a gift to us. And when we know that he is our God and we depend on him, we can live freely with our things. We can give generously, sacrificially. We can let go and we can worship him with everything we've got, without fear. Without fear because we know he will remain faithful to us. He will care for us. So, if you are clinging on to what you have, if you're clinging on to your money, your possessions, your status, thinking that they will give you peace, that they'll give you freedom, then you'll only ever end up disappointed. If you're living for your own glory, you'll find that you're actually never going to be satisfied. You'll never find peace. It's a lie of our sin. That if we just, you know, get a little more and work hard to lift ourselves up, then we'll be happy. But go watch, I'm telling you, go watch Fastest Car and you will see. You can judge for yourself. <laughs> you know, we may gain everything outwardly, but lose everything inwardly. Jesus said it himself earlier in Mark's Gospel. He says, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Our thirst for glory, because this is something that I want you to hear. Uh, everything else doesn't matter. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, no, our thirst for glory is something that is really how our sin plays out. 
that we have a thirst for glory, our own uh, search for kind of our own exaltation. We may not say it that way, but we are striving for ourselves often, trying to save ourselves, trying to protect ourselves. This thirst is unquenchable. It really is never satisfied. I've, I've quoted him before, but it's Rockefeller's famous quote. You know, they asked John D. Rockefeller, the richest man in history, recorded history that we know of, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. You know, that's, this is the thirst for glory. It's the lie of our sin that somehow you'll be able to, to satisfy it, and you can't. It's unquenchable. It's not something that we can satisfy. It only grows worse and worse until we're miserable or we've sacrificed so much that we're left with nothing but regret. We need that thirst for glory to be extinguished. We need our desire to try to achieve it to be wiped out, extinguished. It can't be satisfied. It must be extinguished. We need to sow a new mentality, right? To sail into destiny closer to the heart. We need that desire to die, and we need new desires. And this is something that the gospel promises to us. This is what Jesus actually tells us he does, that he came to do. He came to turn your hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. He came to give you life, to raise you from the dead. That's what he does. We need to hear that good news of Jesus Christ again. We need to hear about God's generosity to us. We need our hearts to be changed, to be set free. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. He says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The widow in our story today is actually a foreshadow of Jesus. Jesus points to what she's done because it points ahead to the cross what he was about to do at the end of that week. The end of that week, he was going to go and he was going to give absolutely everything he had to save you and me. Lay down everything. Give up his glory. Give up his, <clears throat> excuse me, his own wealth. Give up his very life. That's what Jesus did for us. He gave everything so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be saved from that quest, that unending quest for glory. That all ends in him. He puts it to death in his body, and he says, you are forgiven because of my grace, because of my life for your life. And the incredible thing is that now you are rich, Paul says. You are rich because of Jesus. You have everything inwardly, no matter what is going on in your situation externally. You've got everything in Jesus. He has made you daughters and sons of God. And now, the crazy thing is that you are his glory. Instead of us constantly trying to search for our own glory, we actually get to become his glory. He is glorified in you. Your life is a testimony to him. 
And it's a testimony to his grace. Jesus is glorified as the Savior of sinners. That's us. He is now known as the one who comes for the lost and those who are broken and those who cannot stop themselves. Jesus is our Savior. And he gives us new life. He gives us new hearts. He makes everything new. These are his promises to us today. And I'm telling them to you again. You may have heard them many times before. You may have never actually heard them before, and that's fine. But we all need to hear them again because they are the words that set us free from that rat race. They are the words that set us free from trying to, you know, keep up appearances. These are the words that tell us that Jesus has actually conquered our sin, he has conquered the grave, and he has risen from the dead. And we are now free in him. And everything we have, we can live freely with. It doesn't rule over us anymore. Because he is our God. And he's the God that gives everything. Who has given everything. He hasn't held anything back. I want you to remember that. He has not held anything back for you. Paul says in Corinthians that all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus Christ. So think about that. Every time you're worried or you're afraid, you're wondering if God isn't going to come through for you, or you're worried that you've got to start taking control again and got to start holding on to things and trying to, you know, achieve more wealth, you know, to try to protect yourself and save yourself, try to prove yourself. Remember that all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus Christ. He has you. And he's not going to let you go. You don't have to be afraid. You can live with open hands. You can let go and trust that the Lord has got you, because he does. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the fact that you gave everything, Lord, that you gave everything for us so we might be saved. I thank you that you set us free, Lord, from uh, that trap of trying to achieve glory for ourselves. That in you we are released and we get to actually just witness to the freedom we have in you. I pray, Lord, that you would keep that firmly fixed in our hearts and our minds this week. And I pray, Lord, that you would use us to be people who witness, who testify to your goodness. That we, Lord, uh, testify to your glory. You're the Savior of the lost. We pray, Lord, that you would use us to share that message. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.